Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. What if everybody voted? What if voting was a duty, not just a right, an obligation, something like jury duty? E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport say it's time for universal voting. Their new book is 100% Democracy, the case for universal voting. E.J. is a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a professor at Georgetown University. Last time he was here, we talked about his book, Code Red, How Moderates and Progressives Can Unite to Save Our Country. E.J. Dion, welcome back. It is great of you to have us on, John. It's great to be with you. And Miles Rappaport is former Secretary of State of Connecticut. He's now a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School. He's also former president of Demos and former president of Common Cause. And he's also an old friend from college days in SDS. Hi, Miles. John, hi. Good to be with you, too. Well, Republicans have been working for many decades to make it harder to vote. You guys want to make voting compulsory. We all know the case for eliminating obstacles to voting, like long lines at polling places in black neighborhoods. We want to protect the right to vote, block voter suppression, and prevent election subversion. Why isn't that enough for you guys? Why should people be required to vote if they don't want to or if they don't care? EJ. It is not enough to have a democracy based on 40 to 50 percent of us at midterm elections. And even in a great turnout election like 2020, two thirds of us in the election that Joe Biden won. I'm glad you connected those two, John, because our core point is that the best way to protect the right to vote is to assert a universal civic duty and obligation to vote. If this system is adopted, then all of the assumptions in the political system and the electoral system turn around to favor broad participation. 
our book makes very clear that to adopt this system, you must also adopt what we call gateway reforms, which are all the things you talked about uh, to make it easier to vote. This means election officials would have to act in a way that's pro-democracy and that the election laws would have to make it easy for people to vote just as jury service is made as convenient as possible, as onerous as it can be. The the jury duty metaphor is actually a really good metaphor for what we have in mind. Because when you think back to the civil rights movement, one of its greatest victories was ending discrimination in the selection of juries. What that really meant is that African-Americans, Black Americans, like white Americans, would join the pool of those required to serve uh, on juries. Charles Ogletree, the great civil rights lawyer and professor, talked about how juries give extraordinary power to ordinary citizens. That's exactly what elections do. And we think that by making voting uh, an obligation, uh, we will make our democracy much closer to what we have always hoped it could become, which is, in the title of our book, 100% democracy. Has anybody ever tried to make voting compulsory in a democracy? I know they do this in some totalitarian countries. Saddam Hussein had an election in Iraq in 2002. He reported 100% turnout and he got 100% of the vote. I, I don't think that's what you have in mind, but, but has anybody tried it other than Saddam Hussein? Miles. Well, yes, we uh, looked very carefully using the Freedom House definition of democratic countries and there are 26 countries around the world, 26 democratic countries that utilize universal voting in one form or another. We have kind of selected, uh, in a way, Australia as the best case in point, and EJ is the kind of world's leading expert on Australian <laughs> election. Um, but the reason is that they have had it since 1924. Uh, they have a political culture that is far more kind of celebratory and positive uh, than the one we have here, and people have assumed it as a uh, as a a part of uh, of being a democratic citizen without trouble. But the truth is, there are also other countries in Latin America, in Europe, in Africa, and around the world where they have done this. And generally speaking, the results have been good, the turnouts have been higher, and the electorate is more representative of than of the population as a whole. I think Australia is really helpful because number one, they have a streamlined, extraordinary registration system uh, that gets virtually everybody on the rolls. One of my research assistants, when she was researching Australia, burst into my office and say, look at all the cool stuff Australia does to make sure that everybody can vote. Uh, and then they turn out, uh, they register roughly 96% of the population and 90% of that 96% turns out. Um, the second piece is Australia election days are like parties. Australia is known for democracy sausages because turnout is so big that every community group, schools and other charitable organizations use election day to raise money and they sell, among other things, uh, sausages that have come to be called democracy sausages. Uh, for you vegans out there, our book explicitly calls for <laughs> vegan alternatives okay. to democracy sausages. But one of the things that's wonderful about Australia is, unlike us, they don't treat elections as uh, fancy dinner parties. There's no A-list 
of likely voters who get all the attention, and then B and C lists of voters uh, who are largely ignored. There is zero incentive for a political party to try to either suppress the other side's vote, because that's essentially illegal, or to use political advertising to discourage the other side's supporters from going to the polls. That changes the quality of the debate in what both Miles and I see um, as a much better, in a much better direction. Would compulsory voting involve penalties on people who don't vote? Would you like fine people who don't vote and wouldn't that fall unfairly on the poor? The premise of universal voting, as we call it, for both substantive reasons as well as messaging reasons, is that is to create a culture where it is the expectation of every citizen that you will participate and you will vote. Other countries have different mechanisms, but what we recommend is a kind of light touch enforcement where if you don't vote, you would get a letter from the secretary of the state or whomever, explain, you would have to explain your reason, which could be any kinds of uh, legitimate reasons. Uh, and if not, then you would get fined at the level of a traffic ticket. And we have taken great pains in the recommendations that we make in the book that this not become one of those instances where a small fine you know, then becomes uh, interest, it bears interest, it bears penalties, and sooner or later you have a real problem. Our recommendation is that uh, that it not be a fine that can be increased in any way. It can be done by community service, and people can assert, you know, a conscientious objection to voting. So again, our idea is not to penalize people, but it is to have the expectation and the sense of requirement that voting is something that you do in the same way that jury duty is treated now. You know, so, we would put a $20 ceiling on the fine. And if you take, again, the Australian experience, uh, only 13% of uh, non-voters end up paying the fine. They accept legitimate excuses. And a really important thing in our system, both for uh, constitutional reasons, but also for moral reasons, you're not required to vote for anyone. If you don't like any of the candidates, you can cast a blank ballot so there's no compelled speech here. You can scroll anything you want across the ballot, which happens in Australia. Uh, and then just to be very clear on this, we would add a none of the above option to every race. We're not going, we're not about compelled speech. We're about compelled participation. It's quite clear to us that uh, since it is not compelled speech, but compelled conduct like jury duty, uh, it would pass constitutional muster. Yeah, let me ask about the constitutional issue for a minute here. The The original Constitution of 1789 had nothing about a right to vote. And indeed, there wasn't universal, nothing like universal voting uh, in, in the 18th and early 19th century. The 15th Amendment does mention a right to vote, but all it says is, is that it won't be abridged because of previous condition of servitude. And of course, that's a long way from a mandate. You're, you're exactly right about the early republic. The idea of 100% democracy is premised on the trajectory that we have been on from the beginning of the republic. That yes, we started out where the, when we started out, it was essentially white male landowners or property holders who could vote and everybody else was excluded. And over time, we've extended the franchise uh, later to all uh, white men and then uh, briefly after uh, after the Civil War during uh, Reconstruction, 
uh, to black men as well. And then that right was rolled back. But then eventually we got the vote to everyone, to uh, to women in the 1920s and then to black Americans and everyone else through the Voting Rights Act. Even And let's been... mention 18 year olds got the right to vote in what, 1971. I remember. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I remember. You know, so this is about keeping us on that trajectory of uh, inclusion. If you ask me, I am I'm very sympathetic to those who want to add an affirmative right to vote to the U.S. Constitution. I think that would be a good idea. But we think that adopting this idea, which, by the way, and we'll probably get to this, we understand it's not going to be picked up tomorrow morning by a U.S. Congress where we can't even get through necessary reforms like the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act or the Freedom to Vote Act. We think this can start at the local level uh, and the state level. And there are already two bills uh, to advance this idea that are in legislatures in Connecticut and uh, in Massachusetts. So it's starting to percolate up. And our idea is to get this proposal into the mainstream conversation as a real game changer in our voting rights debate. I'll just add that, uh, you know, it, it's it's also the case that we are very, very strongly supportive of a whole series of reforms that are shorter term and that are the subject of public debate now, whether that's same day voter registration or early voting or universal mail in voting or restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions. You know, all these are essential reforms. We call them gateway reforms because we think that they are the necessary kind of precondition for the successful implementation of a universal voting system. But we wanna have the universal voting system, the idea, the fundamental idea that everyone in our society should participate in the, in the process of self-government as a kind of North Star reform to which we will go, you know, and keep in mind, even as we argue over the shorter term things, and even as even the even the small reforms to open up the process are being viciously opposed by many, many people in the society, which is too bad. Different question. What do we know about non-voters? This is something that political scientists and uh, and campaign directors have been studying for, for decades. The, they call these low propensity voters. Uh, many people think of them as unmotivated, ignorant people, people who don't care, maybe people who think all of politics is a ripoff. Why is it good for democracy to require those people to vote? Well, a couple of things. One is um, we really take on the ignorant voters, so-called ignorant voters argument in the book, uh, because our view is if you start making that argument, you're really mistrustful of democracy altogether. Uh, and democracy is based on the idea that people with all kinds of levels of education and income and every race and class and ethnic group have something to contribute to this democracy. And we hold, uh, uh, I, I love the O'Keefe's old book, The Responsible Electorate, which begins uh, with uh, the sentence goes something like the premise of this short but the unlikely premise of this short book is that voters are not fools and we don't think the voters are fools even when we might disagree with how they vote in a given election and we don't think that non-voters are um people who will uh somehow add to the ignorance level in fact what we found in our research is a lot of the people who argue against our idea also don't much like the existing electorate uh and <laughs> condemn them 
There's a lot of research, as you suggest, on the non-voters, and it, it goes in a lot of different directions. Our sense is that this uh, a, an, the electorate produced by our proposal would almost certainly be younger because uh, there is a higher level of abstention among young people, partly because our laws make it harder for young people who move around a lot to vote. There would also be a larger number of uh, folks with uh, blue collar uh, occupations, less formal education, fewer degrees or uh, less uh, formal education. Uh, While there's been an enormous increase in uh, turnout among black Americans, it would probably it would also make the electorate uh, more diverse uh, black and Latino voters. But it would also include more white working class voters. And I think that's an important point to underline. This became law in Australia because each party way back when thought it had some advantage to them in it. And while Miles and I are both progressive in our politics, this is not an agenda to turn the electorate into something that will elect progressives in every election, even if Miles and I would kind of like that. Uh, the purpose of this is to include everyone. Uh, and we we actually make a case that if you look at the 2020 election in terms of the big, big turnout increases we did have, in many places, this helped Republicans elect members of Congress because there were big turnout increases in certain parts of the country in constituencies that uh, lean toward the Republicans. So um, this is not a partisan effort. This is an effort to have a more inclusive electorate, and we are happy to live with the results. On the other hand, re- Republicans have spent decades trying to make it harder to vote, apparently because they think that if more people vote, more Democrats will be elected. And indeed, in 2020, highest turnout in history, Biden got a record number of votes and beat Trump by 7 million. Don't you think more Democrats will win elections if we have universal uh, voting? You know, we really do start from the premise, and it is a fundamental values premise, that we want to have a fully inclusive, fully representative democracy, and that the current electorate is, you know, skewed in a variety of directions towards older, whiter, more educated, and richer voters. And we think that the best decisions would be made, as is the case in jury selection, you know, where you have a fully representative electorate. So that's an article of faith on our part. Yes, it is clear that there has been an effort to make it harder for people to vote. That effort is continuing, you know, in legislatures uh, around the country. I do want to make the point that I think there are a number of Republican election officials and elected officials who do believe in uh, encouraging people to vote. I don't think it's a uniform thing, but I do think that that there is at least a, a, a faction trying to roll back the clock. So that has to be fought. I think it has to be fought in litigation. It has to be fought in legislation, et cetera. But at the same time, we don't want to stop thinking about tomorrow. So we want to think about what it would be like if we had a fully, fully inclusive electorate. That's our goal. That's our hope. One other thing about the non-voter, the evidence that we have uh, is that non-voters tend to be less ideological. So this would produce very likely a more moderate electorate. I have talked about this idea with the Republicans, and at least some Republicans understand that if this system, uh, and these tend to be anti-Trump Republicans, they understand that if a system like this took hold, 
a more moderate electorate would create pressure on the Republican Party uh, to move away from the far right. But it would create pressure on everybody, including people with strongly ideological opinions, to appeal to voters uh, who care about the future of the country but don't necessarily see issues in ideological terms. I joke that either Miles and I are really honest or fools because this is the only book anyone will ever read where we did polling that shows that right now a majority of Americans oppose our idea. As of right now, 26% of Americans support this, which actually we thought was pretty good for an idea that has never been advanced systematically. Uh, 48% strongly oppose But if you look at that 48%, what that means is about half the country is already open to this. This polling was done before Trump really toxified election issues. And what was interesting is Democrats were only marginally more in favor of this than Republicans. Uh, It it was 33% of Democrats were for it, but 29% of Republicans supported it. And on a different question, we asked, is voting a right and a duty? a right but not a duty, or neither a right nor a duty, 61% of Americans share our underlying premise that voting is both a right and a duty. And the number came up exactly the same for Republicans and Democrats, 69% each. So in in at least the uh, before this Trumpification of thinking about voting, there were Republicans who were open to uh, having a conversation at least about this, and we hope that can happen over time. E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport, their new book is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. Guys, you've convinced me. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.